what's really important is the difference that you can make in people's lives. That's why it's worth it, and that's why we want you all to think about supporting or putting your name on a ballot. I ran 45 years ago. A lot of women would say to me, look, politics is no place for a woman. Men would say, can't vote for you because you're a woman. Now, I think the public have changed completely on that. And I think we should have more women in politics. It's good for us, but it's good for everybody. Wow. I am so lucky to be able to have this conversation with each of you today. And we got to hear so much about your, your careers. We watched it unfold as well as you were each in office. And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge our first female premier in this country, who was... Our first female premier of Alberta. And our first LGBTQ premier of Canada. Let's get right into it. When I was listening to the podcast, Kathleen, a moment that really stuck out for me was when you were talking about the Council of the Federation. When you went in, the meeting of the first ministers of this country, of 13 premiers, six were women. When we talk about not being what we can't see, you can't be what you can't see, you literally saw almost a gender equal table at our, one of the highest tables in our country. Can you tell us what that was like so we can live in that reality? <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was great. It really was. Uh, it was uh, wonderful. Um, and I think we felt it. Allison was there. Kathy was there. Um, it, was, it was an exciting moment. And I think, as I said, we all knew it. We were asked questions by the media about, you know, is this a breakthrough moment? Is this, is this something now we're going to see on a regular basis? And Allison particularly brought us down to earth. But we all, we all felt like, oh, let's not get too carried away here. It, uh, it's going to take more than just this moment and this particular confluence of, uh, of events to, to really change things. Um, I think it's great that that moment happened. We can look back on it. There are some kids in this room. Where are the grade two kids? Can you guys throw up your hands? Where are they? They're over there. And there's some other little kids. And I just want to say, you know, for them... It's important, and I'm talking to you guys, it's important for you to be able to look at that picture of us, the 13 premiers, six of whom were women. It's important for them to be able to see that. So, um, so it was a great moment. I think that there were some things that we talked about around that table that might not have been talked about if we hadn't been there. One is that at that meeting, we came together and supported the call for an inquiry into the missing and murdered and indigenous women and girls in this country. And I remember sitting at the table and I remember, you know how you watch the dynamic in a room and you watch the conversation where it's going. And I can guarantee to you that it, at those moments where we might have veered into we're not going to do this, 
We're going to step back and let the uh, Indigenous leaders carry the ball. It was the women who were sitting around that table who stepped up and said, no, 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 no. We're going to make this happen. We also had a conversation about a Canadian energy strategy, which now it may not feel like we have much of a consensus on a Canadian energy strategy. But at that time, we actually were able to forge the, the first draft of a Canadian energy strategy. And then at a later meeting where there were fewer women, but there were still a, a few of us. Rachel was part of that uh, conversation. We actually signed off on a Canadian energy strategy. And again, I believe that it was the women who pushed that conversation. And, and I don't think we would have gotten there without them. So it was, it was a great moment. But it's over and we need to be talking about how that happened. And that's why this, that's why this project's so important. Absolutely. And what we noticed with, within the podcast um, was a sentiment, uh, creating a sense of urgency. Kate and I talked about this before uh, coming up here. The podcast really set the stage. And now what I want to help us do is show everyone in this room that we still have to keep going, that it is our responsibility to continue to move forward and to show up for these offices. So when you think of the current state of affairs... And it will go across the panel for this, Allison, directly to you first. When you look at the current state of affairs, what still gives you hope? What gives you that sentiment of, we are still progressing, this is all so critically important, and the next right steps for individuals who might be in this room could look like this? I think that what gives me hope is watching young women leaders on climate change around the world, and certainly in Canada. Uh, you know, I, I think we need to be vigilant in terms of successes that we've had. I, I personally believe that we need to call people out who pretend to be supportive of women leadership but only pay lip service to it. But I'm very focused on how we encourage and support young women who are feeling so empowered right now on policy issues that they care about at such a young age. Because a lot of research that's been done talks about how a lot of us get into politics when we're older. We sort of live a different life, decide we care about an issue, get involved in politics, and then start to work on it. So when I see kids in high school, my daughter, her friends, lots of the people that are here today that already know what they care about and are starting to figure out how to make that policy change and really hold older politicians' feet to the fire, men and women, I really hope we can find a way to support them because that is really powerful to me. And if you were to... Thank you, yes. The way you talked about your daughter in the podcast and her resilience through watching what you went through at a very critical age in her life, when you're looking at her potential and, and her future... What advice would you give her to start moving policy forward? What advice would you give her to make a difference in this country today? Well, I can't give it to her because she doesn't take my advice because she's 17. <laughs> but for anyone else in the room that might like to listen, <laughs> I think that there is a generation of young women out there who almost don't need our advice because they are so passionate and they are so strong and they are so proud and we need to support them. And so what I would say is keep growing your voice, grow your alliances and 
don't shut up, just keep talking. And as Kathy said, you know, we all bring something different to the table. Sometimes it's policy, sometimes it's politics, sometimes it's just being contrary. We need more contrary young women out there talking about what matters to them, because a lot of things matter to them. Thank you. So being the first female premier, you have had a lot of opportunity to reflect on the changes made in this country for women. What are you most proud of looking back on in terms of the opportunities that have been created for women in our country since you were premier? Well, I think there have been a lot of opportunities created for women. I ran 45 years ago, and I can tell you, when I went campaign door knocking, there were a lot of people, the women would, a lot of women would say to me, look, politics is no place for a woman. Men would say, can't vote for you because you're a woman. Now, I think the public have changed completely on that. And polls show us that uh, they want more women in politics. And I think we should have more women in politics because not only of, uh, it's good for us, but it's good for everybody. I mean, the decisions that are made at the table affect all of us. And when men and women are working together on those decisions, I really believe that better decisions are made. And that has been shown through studies. So I think um, a lot of opportunities have, have come. There is something in my own province that I want to mention. And that is that in the last three years, we've had what you call PEI, Coalition for Women in Government. And each party uh, submitted 10 names of women that might be interested in politics. They were put through a program. And one of the results of that program is that we had more women run in the last election than ever before. Um, and secondly, they tell me that there are more women in the executives and on the committees of all the parties in Prince Edward Island than ever before. And I think that probably a lot of those women will eventually run. So I think there have been a lot of changes. Look, the, the public... Um, perception, 25 years ago, when I was premier, there, we had an historic, political historic event. There were five women that held top positions on Prince Edward Island. The lieutenant governor was a woman, the premier, the leader of the opposition, the speaker, the deputy speaker. Now, the picture probably was in the paper. I recognized it as an historic event, but there was no to-do made about it at all. Last year, 25 years later, I looked, the celebrations for that 25th anniversary for, were this phenomenal. There was a celebration in the legislature, lieutenant governor, the university. They put on a uh, play in Summerside where they hired five actresses to portray the lives of the five of us. And when they started talking about this, I said, who are you ever going to get to go to that? 
the place was packed. There was a waiting list. So that shows to me that really the public opinion has changed a great deal. That's incredible. And when I think of reflecting on the last 45 years of your time in politics, we touched on this a little bit in the last panel, but you had men coming up to you and telling you these things as you were running, that this is not a place for you. This is not where you belong. When you think of bringing men on side in this dialogue, how have you seen hearts and minds changed? How have you seen sentiment changed? What are actionable ways we can bring more men into this mindset that we need and must have more women at the table? Because you've seen this well, firsthand. Well, I think that one thing is that polls show Canadians want more women. Now, if, if the party is listening, uh, to me, that makes common sense that they should be out there looking for women. But women have succeeded in so many areas. I mean, look at the, uh, whether it's law, whether it's medicine. When I was growing up as a kid, if a principal was talked about at a high school, you automatically thought it was a man. And the same thing with a doctor. So that, that's changed tremendously. And I, I think the more men see women uh, in positions and realize that women can do the job. I've had a lot of uh, men, actually, as mentors uh, that have been very helpful. Although my main mentor was Jean Canfield, who was the first uh, woman ever elected to PEI legislature. But um, I, I, I think that men really recognize that women can do the job and they're prepared to vote for them. Thank you for that. So, thank you, yes. When we're looking at our counterpart in the States, we're seeing, um, I don't know if the audience has seen the film Knock Down the House of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's <laughs> campaign. When I think of the seeds that have been planted in our country, it, that, that seed for Alexandra, uh, sorry, Alexandria came up during post-2016 election, when that disgruntledness felt, when we all felt the, the intensity of that change. When we're looking at the points of change in our country and this sentiment of, we have no female premiers right now, we went from six a few years ago to none today. How do we come together around this? How do we action change around this? How do we lobby our partners, part parties to do what was done in PEI so that we can bring them up and through the ranks in our parties? Because in the previous conversation when we were talking about diversity and inclusion, I felt like the onus was put on the individual. But it's the systems that are oppressing us in so many ways. So how can we as young people, as enthusiastic leaders, look at these systems and find our entry points for change? So I think there, I think there are, um, there's been a good discussion about a lot of the structural things that, uh, that need to be done. And I think to one degree or another, parties are grappling with those things. I think this conversation is really important. I mean, I was really thrilled that Kate and Canada 2020 took this on because I think raising the awareness. I mean, we were sitting there and the, when that stat about the finance minister, the national finance minister, like, oh yeah, that's true. People just, we don't know. We don't know those things. And you know, 309 first ministers and only 12 have been women. People just don't have those numbers in their head. And that, that takes me to some of the 
differently structural things. So um, the question that the little girl asked me out in the hall, um, the grade two student, was why are women treated so badly? And that's a grade two child who's asking that question. So we can have, and we have to have the conversation about all the things that have to happen at the party level. And, you know, I had a young woman come in to talk to me the other day, and she'd already been convinced by some backroom guy that she could never be a candidate. It's like, oh, okay, let's have, go have that conversation again, because she couldn't find the 500 members and she didn't have enough money and all those things that are, can be worked around. You know, you can figure that out. But we've got to find different ways of having those conversations and the, the structural stuff that has been talked about is important. But we've got to understand that masses of young women select themselves out before they're even in a position where they would be thinking about going to uh, talk about being a candidate. They've decided a long time ago that they're not going to be in competitive sports and they're not going to they're not going to run for the student council and they're not going to get involved in in political life in any way. They're going to let somebody else take that on. Why is that happening? What is it that's happening in social media or in the attitudinal issues? Why why do we still have to have me too and times up? Those fundamental issues have not been addressed. And my nine-year-old, now ten-year-old granddaughter still thinks, I was writing a, a piece about Agnes McPhail and we were talking about, you know, her, her story and she said, at one point I was reading an article about her and my granddaughter said, well, you know, boys always think they know everything. So... They don't. And that's what I want to say to the young kids. They don't. The boys don't know everything. The boys don't have all the answers. But from the time I was a little girl, that's the story I was told. And so why are women treated so badly? Because that has been the belief in our society and in so many societies that men are better than women, that men are stronger than women, that men can do more than women. And we've got to get at that and we've got to get at it early. I'm not saying that, that, that you know, we, we snap our fingers and change culture, but education plays a really important role in this. I'll end here. Um, I know I'm talking too much, but the, um, the speed with which students and young people rose up, to your point about climate change, but also in this province, the speed with which young people and many young women rose up to take on the cuts that have been um, announced in this province. Um, the women, the young women who came to me when I was Premier and said, there's not enough about consent in the sex ed curriculum, those are the young people we need to support and we need to support them from the time they go into daycare into junior kindergarten, they need to know that they have a place and that they are strong, good people who have a role to play and power to wield. And I think we all agree, you're not talking too much. <laughs> so can I, can yes, I add to that? Absolutely. Um, I think, if I think about today, we talked a lot about, as, as, as you've said, institutional change in the first panel. I think a lot of what we're talking about now is attitudinal change, about how we regard uh, young women, how we support young women. Uh, I also think that we have to be pretty honest about where we are in Canada, and I'm going to be the downer again. You know, we 
internationally are proud of the fact that we have a Bill of Rights. We're proud of the fact that we have some male leaders who are you know, sensitive enough to appoint half of the cabinet as women. The fact is, we had a long way to go in Canada. And that moment in time, when we had six women premiers, was only a moment in time. And I think that sometimes, and this is not something that I'm very comfortable saying, because I don't know what the feedback will be, is I think we have to call people out, and we have to call a spade a spade. And we have to say that it's wonderful that Premier Callback was Premier Callback in 1974. Since that time, since 1974, there have been 12 women who are first ministers. That's really not good enough. And I will say that if I look around the world and I listen to the conversation that's taking place here, I can be sitting in Pakistan and hear, uh, you know, UN women's representatives talk about how it's really important to bring women into politics and women into the economy because if you don't, you're wasting 50% of your population. That's the same conversation that's taking place here. And so I think it's really important that as Canadians, we're honest about who is marginalized. Uh, women are marginalized. First Nations are marginalized. Women who are not white are marginalized. And we have to be honest and say that as Canadians, we have to do better. And we have to acknowledge that we have not done well enough. We gotta call a spade a spade. To come back to the introduction uh, for you, Allison, I was so taken by your conversation around gray suits. <laughs> but it's the most basic thing that we all go through every day. We wake up, we shower, we have to put on our armor. For women, it happens to include makeup, and it happens to include not being able to wear a turtleneck or a suit every day. So that, for me, feels like a major barrier to entry when I think of if politics could even be an option for me, how we can authentically show up as ourselves. How can we authentically show up as ourselves? You just did today. And you do it every day. But in terms of, I can do it on stage as a moderator, but when I enter the political realm, there are different stakes, there are very different expectations. I have a freedom as a business person to live my life like this, to wear my cultural attire. When and I'm the, in politics, And the day that we don't have to qualify it anymore, then we have achieved. Mm -hmm. But to get there, so now let's rewind this. Okay, sorry. I'm, no, I don't want to okay. with you. No, I love it. This is great. This is, the, this is why we're here. But you've had time to reflect on how you could have potentially, or ways that you may have shown up differently. What would that have looked like? Would you have, what would that have looked like? Well, I, I, and I, I don't say this in a trite way. I mean, your comment about gray suits for me is very real. And so my first answer would be, I truly wouldn't wear suits. And, and I think part of that is the way that when we first are introduced to a political discussion, the way that we are presented the way that we think about ourselves, the way that our campaign organizers and campaign managers and our colleagues and our fundraisers tell us we need to behave so that we're in the running. You know, one of the things that's been done, and the academics that are here today, Kate would be able to talk more about this, but this idea that without critical mass, if you are the woman or, you know, the non-white person, 
who is brought into a group, the first thing that the majority in that group does is they test you. And the test is, will you betray where you are from? So when you're talking about the scotch drinking at midnight, I think a lot of women politicians have been in that situation and sort of think, well, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? Should I join or shouldn't I join? Because if I don't join, I'm standoffish. If I do join, what's a woman doing drinking scotch at midnight? So you can't win. And that's the test. And what we have to do, and someone said it earlier, is change the club and change the rules and say, you know what, these tests don't matter anymore because that's not what should be tested. That's not what should be tested. Authenticity is what should be tested. And I don't say it facetiously. You know, I look at, at, at the, the clothes that I wore when I was in politics and I joke that I had costumes. I had, you know, um, very traditional clothes. I had suits. I had Rachel's same province we represented. You know, you've got your clothes you wear when you go to the country. You've got the clothes you wear when you go to different places. Men don't do that. But boy, if we don't do it, we're judged for it. So I don't want to keep talking about that, but I really do feel very strongly that whether you are in politics or whether you are in business, you are sensational today. And when I saw you walk in, I loved what you were wearing. And you have to keep wearing it, and we all have to keep wearing exactly what we want to allow us to express who we truly are and not who people want us to be. Thank you. I could talk to you guys all day. I, I have time enough, and we're probably going to go slightly over, for one question that I would like each of you to answer. But to wrap that point out, I remember in the podcast, Kathleen, you were talking about as you were going through the, the, the last election process, um, it went from the general sentiment, everyone feeling great, to the small things of, it, it became micro when people started turning or, or changing sentiment, where it was like the clothes, the scarves, the this, the that. When we have to, like, when we can't be our full selves and our intellect first, it's, it, it, it is very suffocating. So thank you for sharing that, Allison. Um, so this question is about failure. I know when I think of showing up in the world, failure is front of mind, and it didn't used to be when I was younger. So to our second graders, keep being unrelentingly you. But for me, I need to start moving through this failure a little bit more easily or finding ways to rise. You each had very different exits. You each are here today. There is life after politics. There is life after trying and falling and failing. There's life after every low we can experience in life. And so can you please share with us what tactically you do to come back? What did you do to come back out of those very difficult times, those failure moments? How did you rise? I, uh, I didn't run the second election simply because I was absolutely exhausted. I was having trouble with my energy level. The doctors couldn't diagnose what it was. And it wasn't diagnosed for a year after that it was rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, which with some people, this saps them. I knew I could not take the party through another election. I knew I didn't have it in me. So that's why I stepped down. And when I did, uh, we were 10 points ahead in the polls. Now, whether we would have won or not, I don't know. 
But that's why I, had, I felt I had to leave. And that it's okay to have to step away if that's the case. Oh, I, I didn't have any alternative. You know. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, if I, my health had been with me, I certainly would have been there going into the second election. But uh, an election is so tiring. Well, all, when you're in politics, it's a, it is. It's a very uh, demanding. It's challenging. It's, uh, look, it's probably the best thing I ever did in my life. But... Uh, <laughs> And I have to say, too, I think it was Kathy Dunderdale that was saying to everybody out here, I hope that you're considering putting your name on the ballot. And if you're not, or you think that's not for you, look, I encourage you to support women. I look at my own life. I would not have had 29 years in public life if I hadn't had the support, people pushing me. I was the, the shyest kid you would ever find. And growing up as a, a young woman, I was shy. And I determined that if I was ever going to get over that shyness and do things I wanted to do, I had to push myself, and I did. But having people say to you, I think you'd be good in politics. You should run. I'll help you financially. I'll help you with your campaign. You have no idea how much that influenced you, or it did me. So, as I say, if you don't want to run yourself, then look around you. Lots of women that are qualified <clears throat> that would like to run. So get out there, support them, encourage them. Thank you so much. My final question, we're going to go slightly over time, but my final question for you, Kathleen. So many people on the podcast said, it was so hard, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. What, why would you do it again? What was the greatest aspect of the time that you served that you can leave us all with as that motivator for this is why we can also do this? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combine your last question with this question because um, when I say it was totally worth it and I would do it again, it's because uh, I was able to, with my colleagues, with my team, uh, make a difference in people's lives. I mean, that's why I got involved. I got involved because I believed that publicly funded education, publicly funded health care, strong municipalities, reducing poverty, that those were things that we needed to work towards. And uh, to your earlier question about the tactics after you lose, um, how do you rise? I mean, I feel like I'm still rising. Yes, I'm standing, but I'm kind of on my knees a little and I'm just <laughs> helping myself up. But, but the fundamental reason that I got involved in politics uh, remains the same. People ask me why I'm still in the legislature, apart from the fact that we only have seven members, which is, you know, one of the reasons I'm still there. But the real reason, the real reason I'm still there is that I still believe that 
we have to fight for strong publicly funded education. I still believe that we have to fight for the rights of people who can't speak up for themselves and who are living in poverty. That hasn't changed. And so my reason for being and wanting to be in elected office is absolutely the same today as it was in 2000 when I first ran uh, as a school trustee. So that, and that is what motivates. That is what makes it so worth doing because those are the issues. It's not about the trappings because the trappings are, can be really awful. They can wear you down. Um, what's really important is the difference that you can make in people's lives. That's why it's worth it and that's why we want you all to think about supporting or putting your name on a ballot. Thank you so much. I'm making a game time decision because uh, we've had two folks or two of you respond to that last question and Allison, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this because it's been in my heart, but how, how, what is your formula for rising? I was hoping you wouldn't get to me. <laughs> that might have been what I was channeling there. <laughs> it was horrible. And uh, I'll be quite honest, when I finished, uh, I don't know if any of you ever read that book, Stop the Insanity. I don't remember what it was about. It was an exercise or diet or something like that. But I spent a year going through an absolutely horrible time where at one point, even though they were all found to be unfounded at the end of the day, I had three RCMP investigations going on against me. And what I learned is I had a really good group of friends. And they weren't a very big group of friends, I'll tell you. Uh, and there were a lot of people who were prepared to say anything publicly. Uh, and that's had an impact, and I'll tell you, and you can probably hear it in my voice, I'm still going through it. And quite honestly, I might go through it for the rest of my life, because it was a profound, a, pr a profound experience. And I always debated whether or not I would talk about it. But I met Kate, and, uh, who's run out of the room. And she convinced me that it was important to tell the story. And I'll tell you that going through this project and getting to see people again, like people that I served as premier with, uh, and the stories that I got to hear from them for the first time helped me an awful lot. Uh, but I would say, and it's, what it, it's the advice that I give to everyone, is before you start down this road, pick your friends. And, and know, even my 17-year-old knows, there's not a lot of people you can trust in the world. So find them. They'll stick with you. And then know that you can be authentic. And if you believe in who you are, and you know who you are, and you don't lose faith in that, then you will get through it. And I also started yoga a year ago. And that's yes! Last. Yeah, I know, no, I know. No, I, I wish we could keep going. I can see that it's yelling at us. But um, I just wanted to go back to something Rachel said earlier, and that is to people who might be thinking about this, 99% of the doors that you knock on, 99% of the people who you talk to face-to-face, -face, not the social media, not the trolls, but the people who you talk to face-to-face, -face, they're wonderful. And that is, that is part of what gets you through these bad moments. So I think that is that's something to hold on to and just to know. I think that's so important to end on because like we said earlier, it can be bleak when you look at the current status. But we've had our firsts and now we get to keep the momentum going. And if there's anything I know as a storyteller, it's that stories help us rise. 
And so thank you to No Second Chances. Thank you to Canada 2020. Thank you to every first, uh, minute, or first premier here in the room, premier here in the room. I am floored. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody here. This is how our country has to remember these women. This is how our country needs to remember these women and what they have done for us. And we must move forward. Coming up on No Second Chances. We are all flawed candidates. None of us is perfect. And we step in it and we make mistakes. And equality for women will come when we are forgiven at the same rate as men are. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yeyanos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the support of MasterCard. <laughs>